Well, uh, good to see you guys. Let's, uh, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll jump into tonight's teaching. Father, thank you for bringing us together again this evening. Thank you for your kind provision in uh, giving us uh, families and children and good churches. And God, you've been very kind to us. And we thank you so much for the word that is in front of us and the opportunity that we have this evening to explore and understand your word in greater detail. So, Lord, bless our time together. Um, And then in the second half, as we hear about Heath and Jessica and what they will do, Lord, just come and um, bless this service. And may your people be encouraged and may your church be built up and strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. Really, my text for this evening is really the whole Bible. Um, There's not, we're in the Sunday evening series, we're doing more of a didactic kind of teaching approach. And this evening, um, I'm going to unfold kind of some categories of thinking for you that I hope will be helpful and instrumental in your understanding of the church and what we're doing. We're in this series called Bedrock, the Foundations of Heritage Baptist Church. And in this series, the purpose of it really is to help you understand the underpinning of our mission and vision, which is forthcoming, that you can understand clearly um, who God has called us to be, who we are, our identity. That's a big issue, especially in today when so many people struggle from identity crises. We need to know as a church who we are. That's a crucial thing for us. Um, Americans are the target of constant marketing. You know this. You turn on the TV, you see this. The people are constantly marketing things. They're promising us happiness. If we just buy this or buy that, if we invest in this or that. And sadly, that marketing scheme has found its way into the church, hasn't it? So that what happens then in the church is that the best marketed voices rise to the top. Church growth gurus come and they say, hey, this is the way to sort of grow your church and to make it big and successful. And people emphasize a certain approach. So a bunch of people will jump on board and follow that approach. And then another generation will come along and say, well, you know, we don't really like that approach. We got a better idea for how we think we should kind of do church. So they come with a different set of emphases. And then everybody jumps on board and then they go with this set. And sooner or later, what happens is this cycle goes back and forth. People jump on board this, people jump on board that. And this pattern repeats itself. And the church gets swept up into fad after fad. Well, that's a sad situation. In essence, what happens, the American church is really suffering from what I would call a constant state of whiplash as they jump from thing to thing and fad to fad as it's bombarded with new books, conferences, new figures, icons promising all this success. Really, that's tiresome. What really matters is what does the word of God teach us about the church and who we are? That's what really matters. And on this very point, Daniel Montgomery, pastor of Sojourn Community Church in Louisville, Kentucky, says this. He says, pastors get drunk on fads, driving their churches while under the influence, leaving congregations dizzy as they careen from fad to fad. Over the years, everything gets a spiritual hangover. Everyone gets a spiritual hangover, unable to get excited about the new thing, wondering why it feels like something is missing. Well, what's missing is that pastors are not leading their churches with his word. That's what's missing. The Bible and the gospel are no longer the bedrock uh, to play into our series theme of their ministries. But of course, when churches are unclear about who they are 
and what God has called them to be, they will inevitably suffer from an identity crisis. And the result is that such churches constantly change their mission to fit the whims of their ever-changing identities. So you see kids that are constantly changing the way they look. For three or four years, they might be emo. For the next three or four years, they might be into some grunge look or a hipster look or whatever. And the churches go through these same kind of morphs, ever-changing identities. On the other hand, though, some churches suffer from a lack of identity, not because they're being blown around by the whims of culture, but because they actually need to be carefully taught and constantly reminded of what God has called them to be. In short, the the issue there is that our job as pastors is to constantly remind you of who we are and actually what God has called us to be. And this is crucial because identity precedes mission. Now, hear me carefully on this. Identity precedes mission. In fact, before a church can rightly understand its mission, it has to come to to terms with its identity. It makes all the difference. Um. In other words, what we do flows from who we are. The identity of the church shapes its mission, and that's what this series is all about. It's designed to articulate a biblical identity, who God has called the church to be. And in that sense, these principles in this series apply to all churches anywhere in the world. We could take this series and preach it in the middle of Africa, and it would fit perfectly. Why? Because identity of the church is cross-cultural. Okay, this is not a cultural fad. These are biblical identities that fit in any culture. And as your pastors, we think it's critical to remind you of who we are before we call you to mission. And we're going to be doing that, calling you to mission in a few weeks when we lay down a vision plan and a mission for our church. But before that, we want to, call, we want to think carefully about our identity, and that's the purpose. Who we are and what is our self-conscious identity as a church? I mean, if I asked you that question, what's our self-conscious identity as a church? I don't know if would you be able to answer that. And I think the purpose of this series is to help you be able to answer that clearly. So when this series is over, you say, I absolutely know exactly what we exist for. Well, every church needs stability, and uh, what we need is a faith that has a sense of rootedness to it and that isn't tossed around by marketing fads and celebrity, celebrity figures. We need something with history, something with depth, a reliable guide for our future as a church. In essence, what we really need is a map that guides us and directs us where to go, and we are going to identify in this, for the next eight weeks really this ancient path concerning what God has called us to be and to do as a church. So tonight, I want to do two things. First, I want to give you a bird's-eye view of where we're going in the next several weeks. I've stated the purpose, but now I want to kind of give you a more zoomed-in look at kind of where we're going for the next several weeks. And then I want to talk about our most foundational identity this evening as a church. Okay? So first, where are we going? Well, if you look at the screen you'll discover what your pastors consider to be our essential identity as a church. In short, we could say that we are a gospel-formed worship community on mission. Or another way to say it is we're a gospel-formed family of worshipers on mission. You think back to a couple of weeks ago when PT was up here sharing and drawing the triangle. He talked about worship, gospel, community, and mission. And 
now we're just kind of throwing that into a statement so that you can see that we are a gospel-formed family of worshipers. That's four things there. And every word in that is critical. Gospel-formed. We don't form ourselves. We didn't, this isn't the Rotary Club. This is Jesus' church. Big difference. We could start a club and come up with our favorite things and, and, and do that. But we didn't form ourselves. We didn't get a committee together and say, anybody passionate about uh, a gym and bringing some kids together and then maybe throwing in a guitar? And No, we, we were formed by the gospel itself. And we're formed not to worship the creation, but to worship our creator. And together then we're formed into what? A family, a community of believers that exists what? For our, just for ourselves? No, we exist for the world. And so we're on mission. So there's a diagram that I want to show you. And this diagram is helpful, I think, because it shows the beginning of our being gospel formed. So at the beginning, this is like a, a megaphone. So the gospel is the entry point and the gospel has formed us. And through the gospel, we get our fundamental identity, who we are. Your most significant, the reason why you are valuable is because you're made in God's image. But beyond that, you're extra valuable in the sense that you are God's child. You're adopted into his family. Your identity is in Christ. Incredible promise for the Christian. So we get our identity through the gospel we're formed into a we were formed to worship God out of that identity. See, because Jesus has saved us, we want to worship Jesus. So we become worshipers. We understand our identity. We then become worshipers. We become worshipers, not Lone Ranger Christians. We don't sit at home and sort of flip on flip on uh, the the you know the Christian TV channel and watch church on TV. No, we come together because we've been called together. So we're a community, we're a family. And then that family then fans out and reaches the nations. So you can see the ripple effect here of gospel, hitting, getting our identity, which leads to worship, community, and mission. Or let me show you another diagram that may be helpful. I like this one because it's the same idea. The, the, the idea is that the gospel saves us. And it doesn't just save Jeff Gatiller. It saves Jason Green, and it saves Brandon Boswell, and it saves Dwayne Baldwin, and it saves Hugo Lytle and Nick Knapp. It saves a bunch of people that then gather together into the second figure, the second picture there, a gospel community, people that are together, that love the gospel and love Jesus together. And then what do they do? They live in neighborhoods, don't they? And they reach those neighbors and eventually they get really excited about making the gospel known and they decide they want to reach their city because not reaching your neighbor is a good goal, but reaching the city is a bigger goal. And they really have a heart for the whole city that they live in. And eventually you have a situation like the dames where they want to go to the world and reach the world. So it's a gospel-centered worship community on mission locally and globally. You see? This is, this is foundational stuff. Now, the main word I want to pull out of that phrase, gospel form, worship, community on mission, is the word gospel formed. Um, because the gospel comes first before, because at the core, we are people that have been formed by the gospel. And, and we've been formed into a family, and that family is to be busy reaching God's world on mission. 
So we've been saved by the gospel. We've been gathered into the family. And because of that, we do sort of three things, okay? Because we've been saved by the gospel and gathered into a family, we do three things. We worship God chiefly and primarily. We, we love one another. We love God. We love one another. We love brother. And then we love neighbor. We love God. We love brother. And we love neighbor. And those are three things that we are to be committed to as a church. In essence, another way to say it is we're disciples. We've been made disciples. And we're disciples who worship, so we're worshipers. These are identity markers. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're disciples. We're worshipers. We're family. We're servants. We serve one another. And then we're missionaries. That's who we are. We're disciples, worshipers, family, servants, and missionaries. That's who God has made us to be. Another way to say it is we're tri-directional as a church. We're upward in our love for God. We're inward in our love for one another. And we're outward in our love for the world. Or you could say pursuit of God, pursuit of the world, pursuit of brother. And all of that is because the gospel is at work in us. Incredible what the gospel has done. And incredible what it's doing. So to say it again, we're a gospel-formed worship community on mission. And that means each week as we gather together, we are to be engaging in these major activities as a church. So if we're, if we're sort of leaving off the worship component, we're not a church. If we're leaving off the community component of serving one another, we're not a church, biblically speaking. If we're leaving off the mission component, we're not a church. We're to be these three things, and we're to do that weekly, which means we have to think creatively and aggressively about how do we work these rhythms into our church on a weekly and monthly basis? How do we structure our time together that gives us an opportunity to worship God and serve one another and serve the world around us? It means we have to plan and actually think about structure to make that happen. So if the structure that we're in isn't working, isn't helping us be a community or be a family, or to be missionaries and to serve the larger world, then we have to think through those issues. And, uh, and we are as your pastors. So we think what happens is really gospel worship happens on Sunday morning. We come here and we worship. And gospel community certainly happens when we get together in our small groups, our community groups. And, and gospel mission happens as we are evangelistic with our hospitality. We're inviting people into our homes. We are doing VBSs on Fifth Street. We are setting up, we are moving people to different places of the city and seeking to engage a lost community for Jesus Christ. So that's the big picture of how the gospel has formed us as people. That's our essential identity. We are a gospel-formed people, and that's a very precious thing. Now, what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I want to talk about um, the gospel in specific. And I want to talk about the gospel in two ways. Since we're a gospel-formed community, the question is, what is the gospel? And when we say that, what is the gospel, we're really asking two things. The first thing we're asking when we say, what is the gospel, is we're asking, what is the message that a person must believe in order to be saved? What is that message? I'm talking about a proposition, I'm not talking about your lifestyle. I'm talking about words. What is that message a person must believe in order to be saved? And second, when we ask the question, what is the gospel? We're saying, what's the whole good news of Christ, of Christianity, and its consequences for the world? 
What's the whole good news of Christianity? In other words, we have to make a distinction between what is often called the gospel of the cross and the gospel of the kingdom. I'm going to help you understand this language and terminology. See, the gospel of the, of the kingdom is this wide lens of the gospel, while the gospel of the cross is this more narrow lens of the gospel. Another way to look at it is to say that the gospel of the cross is the gateway or the entry point into the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, the only way to receive the more general blessings of God's kingdom is through the specific message of the cross. In their book, the, um, the, What is the Mission of the Church?, Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert talk about these two aspects of the gospel, and uh, they define them this way. The gospel of the kingdom, they say, is uh, defined this way. The good news that God is going to renew and remake the whole world through Christ. It's the gospel of the kingdom. Big picture, wide lens. The gospel of the cross, then, they define this way, is the good news that God is reconciling sinners to himself through the substitutionary death of Jesus. Do you see the difference? Okay. So just to be clear, when we talk about the gospel, we're speaking about it in these two senses. In the broad sense, we're talking about the gospel of the kingdom is this message that when Jesus returns, he will complete what he began by renewing the entire material creation. And, and that process is underway in, in, in a sense in that we're just as a foretaste where we see things. We see the inbreaking of the kingdom to come now. That's why there, you see people being healed. God is kind and pleased to heal people sometimes. And that's why we see restoration and that people recover from drug abuse and from sexual abuse and things like that. What is that? It's just restoration. That's a foretaste of what we will experience someday. So that's the gospel of the kingdom. Now, in the narrow sense, the gospel of the cross is this message that sinners can be forgiven through repentance and faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So one deals with the salvation of the entire cosmos, the renewal and restoration of the cosmos. The other deals with the renewal and restoration of the sinner. And there's just two different levels, and, and it's important that we understand that distinction. I found it helpful to use a framework to, for understanding the gospel of the cross and gospel of the kingdom this way. The gospel of the cross can be easily understood as using four words, God, man, Christ and response. So God is holy. He created the universe. He created it in perfect harmony. Something went wrong. God, man, man sinned. That's what went wrong. Genesis 3, we had two chapters of bliss. And then chapter 3 came and ruined everything. So sin into the world. God, man, through man, Christ has come to redeem broken man. And so the question is, what's your response to that? Faith and repentance. So that's the gospel of the cross, really, in four words. We could do the same thing with the gospel of the kingdom, which, by the way, that phrase, gospel of the kingdom, that's not um, clever phraseology. I mean, that's right out of Mark. Jesus says that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So the gospel of the kingdom, then, we can say in four words, really, as well, creation, fall, Redemption and restoration. I had a lunch appointment with a non-Christian guy um, last week, and we sat and we talked about the gospel. But I decided to approach the story of the gospel not from the God-man Christ response framework, but from creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. 
And that was really fresh and I think helpful for him because he's a guy who has heard the gospel many times, but he's not a Christian. And as we sat and talked through the gospel in creation, fall, redemption, and restoration language, it was helpful to him because it was talking about how God created the world to be and how his world is, he's not living the lifestyle that he himself knows he should be living. His world is broken. It's fallen. It's full of brokenness. And he needs to be redeemed from a broken and messed up life and world. But God is on a plan to restore him if he'll repent and put his trust in Jesus. So that framework is you can also take that from that macro level and press that down onto people in a very micro level and give them a grid to think through their own need of Jesus. So just encourage you to think through the utilization of that as a process of sharing the gospel. Now, Tim Keller, in his essay entitled The Gospel in All of Its Forms, he actually puts these two aspects of the gospel together, gospel cross, gospel of kingdom together, and he defines the whole deal, the whole gospel this way. I think it's very helpful. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, he says, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. So he's really grabbing all these pieces and putting them together. So through the person of Jesus, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin. Okay, that's gospel of the cross stuff. Into fellowship with him. And then he restores, here it is, creation is gospel of the kingdom in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. So that's helpful. Now, what we, I think we're pretty fluent as a church in our understanding of gospel of the cross. We should be. God, man, Christ response. I think we're fluent in that language, although we need to continue to work on being more fluent in understanding substitutionary atonement and the heart and the essence of the gospel. So I want to spend just our last few minutes together just talking about the gospel of the kingdom because I want to bring more um, help to you in this regard because you may not have thought about this as carefully um, with the gospel of the kingdom. So um, when we talk about this, most, most of us in America have seen parodies uh, of a king and crowns and kingdoms, but we've never actually seen, at least most of us, my wife probably has more than the rest of us, but most of us have not seen anything clear in our language and in our culture, this idea of royalty, of a kingdom, and we've not approached sort of the real thing. So the language for us is void. It's filled with chatter all around. I mean, we talk about the Prince of Wales, maybe, or we'll talk about our local high school homecoming queen. I mean, this is about the closest we get, homecoming king. We talk about royalty, but we don't really get it, and we don't really understand it. We don't live in that culture. Kingdom doesn't make sense to us, kingdom language. The closest we get is Budweiser, king of beers, you know, or something, or, or, or you know, Dairy Queen. <laughs> That's sad. That's the closest we get to kingdom language in America. And so, you know, we, we have a problem here. So what, it's no wonder that when people start using language like the kingdom of God, it fails to move us or motivate us. We don't get it. We don't know what's going on. The concept of kingdom is so far removed from our daily life. We just don't get it. But listen, but, but just think about this for a minute. The early church did, 
didn't have that struggle. For the early church, a kingdom, the concept of kingdom was real, was real to them, blatantly real. It was daily for them. It was something they encountered weekly, daily. It, was, it wasn't a concept. People lived under the absolute rule of Caesar. That meant something to them. And, and into that world, Jesus comes and he announces a new kingdom. You think about this. We can define the kingdom of God this way. If we were to define it, I think one way to say it would be the kingdom of God can be defined as life with God under the rule of God made immediately available to us through the life and work of King Jesus. Let me say that again. The life, life with God under the rule of God made immediately available to us through the life and work of King Jesus. But whenever we talk about the kingdom of God, it's crucial that we see it in contrast with another kingdom. Because there's another kingdom that needs to be exposed, and the Bible calls it what? The kingdom of darkness. Yeah. It's the kingdom of Satan who is hell-bent on spreading lies, disease, death, and destruction, ruining this, this world. In fact, this kingdom is the root of all earthly evil that exists, all earthly kingdoms that exist. So, I mean, you think about tyrannical governments around the world, dictators, ruthless dictators, Hitler, his regime, uh, Idi Amin, others who have had these ruthless regimes. What's behind all that is Satan and the kingdom of darkness, which is pushing and propelling all of that stuff. It's the reason why there are tyrants in the world. It's the reason why we see bodies stacked like wood in Auschwitz or Rwanda. It's the reason why this world is so messed up. But we all know intuitively that, that this is not how the world is supposed to be. This is not what life is supposed to be like. And so we ask ourselves, what's the solution? Even the world asks that question, what's the solution? Secular media asks that question. You see, even ungodly men and women have a desire to see this broken world made right. And so energy gets channeled into all types of social movements that promise a renewed world through naturalism, through capitalism, through anti-globalism, through education, through veganism. Wh whatever your brand is of trying to fix the world, let's stop all those people from eating meat. Let's stop all those people from killing animals. Let's educate all these people. Let's go and build houses in slums, whatever. People are just trying to fix this broken world. Politicians are constantly promising renewal and change. In it. And if you allow yourself to believe all that stuff, you'll end up putting your hope in earthly and secular institutions to change the world, which is why some Christians get so wrapped up in politics. Because they've placed too much hope in structures changing this world, and they ultimately never will. So in one sense, as Christians, I, I think we could say that we're both skeptics and believers in this regard. Because we know that something's wrong with the world and we can't fix it. We're skeptics. We're, we can't fix it. We, we just can't do it. On the other hand, we know that if we can find the right king, he can fix it. And his name is Jesus, and we have found him. So into this madness of our fallen world, Jesus comes 
after laying low for 30 years, Jesus begins his public ministry with a message. And you know what he said? He said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I want you to think about this, how radical and scandalous that message was for Jesus to announce a new kingdom. Tom Wright says this, he says, imagine what it would be like in Britain or the United States today if someone were to go on national radio and television and announce that there was now a new prime minister or a new president. From today onward, the guy says, the announcer says, from today onward, we have a new ruler. We're under a new government and everything's going to be different. That, that's not only exciting talk, that's frightening talk. It's treason. It's sedition. By what right does this man stand up and say this? How does he think also that he'll get away with it? You see, that is exactly what Jesus did in the middle of a kingdom. Jesus comes on the scene and says, new kingdom. I'm announcing a new kingdom. And it's no wonder he was crucified. So in that sense, the gospel is not simply an invitation The gospel is a declaration. It's an announcement that Jesus is king, that Jesus is reclaiming the world for himself. It's a declaration of war against all competing kingdoms, the kingdoms of your life, the kingdoms of this world, the political regimes around the world, all tyrannical governments. Jesus is coming and saying, I'm going to overthrow all of that evil and I'm going to set up my kingdom and I'm going to restore the world. This is the gospel of the kingdom. It's an invasion of God's power and rule. God's kingdom is a place where what God wants to get done, guess what? He gets it done. It happens. It's a a world where God heals the sick, where he casts out demons and he cleanses lepers. The kingdom of light is invading the kingdom of darkness and it is eating it alive. The kingdom of light is winning and it will win this battle. And so all of this talk of Jesus when he comes in and announces the kingdom is a direct assault on the kingdom of darkness. The demonic world is disturbed and God is in the business. Friends, listen, right now, today, 2013, he's in the business of reversing the curse and redeeming the world. God's kingdom is breaking into hospitals, to tuberculosis wards in third world countries, to ghettos populated with sick, crippled, forgotten, and starving people. And it's saying that death and decay will not win the battle. That's what gives us hope for missions. So looking at Heath and Jessica, why can they go to the Horn of Africa and give their life for Jesus? Here's why. Because death and decay will not win. Those ghettos and those places in the third world, those sick and crippled and forgotten people are not sick, crippled, and forgotten forever. God has a desire to heal them, to restore them, to save them, and to bring them into his restored kingdom. Incredible. So God's in the business of reversing the curse. Demons flee, diseases are healed, and death is subdued. And that's happening right now. It's happening in our city. Are you a part of it? Do you want to be a part of it? So the gospel of the kingdom is God's announcement that life with God under the rule of God is made available to us right now through King Jesus. See, God is not making something new. He's restoring something old. 
This is a restoration of something old, something that we've lost. It's the path back to paradise. This is where everything started in the garden, where we see a world without gossip and slander, a world without pain and disease, a world without envy or pride, a world without war or murder. It's a world in which we all live in harmony with God and one another. So in Luke chapter 4, you know when Jesus walks in to this uh, synagogue and he begins reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Do you remember this passage? He begins reading from Isaiah chapter 61. This is found in Luke 4, 21. It's an amazing scene. They're, they're, they're so impressed with the words of Jesus. They're listening with bated breath to everything he has to say. They're so enamored with the words of Jesus. They're so taken in. Like you feel like they're going to fall down and worship him right there. And then Jesus says this. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to captives. And at that moment, when Jesus declares who he is and he says that what was said by the prophet Isaiah is fulfilled in your presence today, meaning that text is me, that I'm the one who has come to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, that I am that one. They wanted to kill him and destroy him. So Jesus has made this incredible announcement. That's what he's come to do. He's come to heal and restore our broken world. And this just gets me so excited. I want to be a part of restoration. I want to be a part of seeing people broken, crippled, forgotten, lost, dirty, gross, stinking people come to know Jesus Christ. At friends, at some point, we have to become uncomfortable with just sitting in the pew, in the chair. Because we are on mission for Jesus and with Jesus. Because whether we like it or not, there's this grand story of redemption taking place. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And you've been swept up into it. But the question is, are you a laborer in that plan and in that project? And as your pastors, we want to help you labor. We want to help us build structures that enable us to labor. So how does he do this? How does, closing this out, how does Jesus restore the kingdom? How does he bring restoration? Here's the most amazing thing about it. And this is where the gospel of the kingdom begins to sort of intersect with the gospel of the cross. Okay? Here's what happens. The ruler of the kingdom, the ruler of the kingdom suffers for his subjects. He, the ruler of the kingdom, humbles himself and lives among them. God becomes man and dwells among us. The incarnation is breathtaking. I just, oh, I just, I was thinking about it today. The fact that God suffers, that God suffers for his enemies. That's an unbelievable thought. The way that God wants to save his enemies is that he incurs suffering himself. What king leaves his throne to do such a thing? God is amazing. He suffered. Jesus suffered under Pilate in the satanic realm. And by so doing, he conquers both kingdoms of man and the kingdom of darkness and Satan. Which means the very one who was scorned and crucified is now exalted above every name. And by doing that, we have forgiveness and a restored hope. The bottom line is this, friends, is that God sacrificed Jesus to make a way for you and us. 
And through the death of Jesus, we have an all-access pass behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. You have access to God. What privilege you have. We should repent and believe. That's our response. How do we respond to this kingdom? We repent and we believe the gospel of the kingdom is the announcement that life with God is available to all who put their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when we become citizens of this kingdom, we're not ruled by sin and human greed or corruption any longer. No, we're ruled by a king who is busy, listen, turning darkness and turning darkness back and reversing the curse. God is in the process of making all things new and we have been swept up into that drama. And that's what it means in part, friends, for us to live on mission. We are swept up into this grand story of God. And to be part of God's kingdom means that we have loyalty for the king. We are to have a new king and we have a new king. We worship a new king, not because we've earned our way into his presence, but because he has conquered us. He conquered us and we surrendered to King Jesus. And now we are being led into this triumphal procession as we follow Jesus into the battlefield. And as we labor with Jesus to reach the rest of the nations and then the world will come, the end will come. And so Jesus has conquered the old kingdom of Adam and sin and death and Satan. And he has stripped them of power and he is exposing their nakedness to the world And now we find ourselves serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So friends, this is the message that we stand on. This is the message we live for. We are gospel formed people. If you take anything away from tonight, take that phrase away. We are a gospel formed people. We've been saved by this gospel of the cross and we've been swept up into this larger gospel of the kingdom. So let's get on mission with Jesus and live and die for that message. And next week, um, pastor Mark will talk about protecting that message in our church. This is our first identity. We are gospel formed people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for really the Bible as our text and this grand storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We thank you so much for what you have done and we give you praise. Help us, Lord, as we transition now into this second half to just be have hearts full of worship as we think about this, that you have done this for us, that we're involved in this grand story. We're thrilled to be involved. We want to tell you that, that we are thrilled to be involved in this story. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege. Bless us now, Lord, as we transition, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We can let the children go as we sing, and then we'll hear a presentation. Let's stand.